And thank you for being here. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. If you want to take your Bible, turn to Psalm 105. I want you to think about what is your very favorite story to tell. What story is it that you try to bring up when you're with new people? No matter where the conversation is going, you try to steer it towards that direction. We all have that that story. We're in the middle of a series called Flourish, and we're talking about what it means to flourish in the house of God. A few scriptures that we've been coming around, I want to read out loud together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, let's read this together. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Then Psalm chapter 92, verse 13, talking about the righteous. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So there's a progression here, and and we're just asking ourselves, where are you in the progression? We start out as strangers and aliens to God's family. We're born the creations of God, but not the children of God. That's a right that's given to you uh, when you believe in Jesus. We move into the house of God. Uh, Then we plant ourselves. We put down roots. We talked about lingering, about uh, this being a place that you You can call home and you treat it like home. You're known like you are at home and you know others like you know them at home. And then once you place roots, then you begin to bear fruit. Then you begin to flourish. Where are you in that progression? We've talked about the church and our priorities. We've talked about the church and the word of God. We've talked about church and faith. Uh, We've talked about church and the reputation of Jesus. And today we're going to talk about the church and your story. Uh, So I asked you, what is your very favorite story to tell? Uh, I'll tell you Amanda's because that's what preachers get to do. They get to tell uh, stories about their wives. Uh, Amanda's favorite story to tell is about our first date. Um, We had known each other a week, but we had not actually gone on an official date. And so this one night I came and picked her up here in Houston. I was from Missouri, but here we are. I came and picked her up at her house and we were all excited to go on our very first date. And so she was going to show me some local favorite things. So we went to James Coney Island and everybody said amen to James Coney Island. If you're not familiar with it, then uh, you hate yourself because it is the most wonderful place on planet earth. Uh, When you go to James Coney, Island. This is what I learned on my first date. You order the classic uh, Coney uh, value meal, which is two chili cheese coney. So let me just give you a rundown. Here's uh, uh, the freshest bun you've ever had. There's never a stale bun at James Coney Island. I don't know what they do. They probably load it up with so many preservatives, but I don't care. It's so fresh. And then uh, they put down the hot dog and then they go with uh, a chili. It's not real chili. It's chili that tastes better than chili. And then they put the cheese on it. Now in your mind, if you've never been, you're thinking that they just sprinkle it on there. No, this cheese comes out of a gun. It comes out of a gun in Texas. It's amazing. It's a big silver gun. And you watch them back there. The chili goes on and then the cheese gun comes out and they just down the middle of it. You get two of those. And so she's teaching me, you can get mustard on it, but that's terrible and awful. And why would you do that? But some people do. And onions on the top. And so Amanda's mentoring me in James Coney Island. And then she says, do you want chili cheese on your fries? And I'm like, am I alive? Yes, I want chili cheese on my fries. Who doesn't want chili cheese on their fries? And so we, this is the best thing that I've ever had in my whole life. In fact, we're going to leave church and we're just going to all go together. There's one just two blocks from here. We'll just, we'll just be there together in Jesus name uh, together. 
It'd be awesome. So we ate James Coney Island, and then we go bowling. Now, the reason that she wanted to go bowling is she wanted to, to let me know how great she was at bowling. And the way she tells the story is that she won. Now, the scripture says that husbands are supposed to give themselves up for their wife, like Jesus gave himself up for the church. And so I let her think that. No, but she won fair and square. I've tried my best to make sure she has never won again. Uh, but, uh, but she won. And then it was the year 2000, so we had to go to Starbucks because you couldn't go on a date in the year 2000 without going to Starbucks. She doesn't like coffee, and I'm kind of on the fence about it, but you still had to go to Starbucks. And so we get to Starbucks, and we're out in the parking lot, and we're enjoying our ice creams, essentially. And uh, a friend... A friend from high school or college comes over. I don't know this person. And, and so they talk for a minute. And then there's that moment where she turns and she says, this is my friend, Curtis. And so I'm like, okay, all right. This is where we are. This is where we are. So the conversation is over and this you know, person goes away. And I'm like, friend, that's where we are. And she's like, well, I didn't know what to say. You know? And the way I remember it is essentially we decided right in that moment, we are not friends. We are more than friends. We're going to forever be more than friends, but this is it. So men, if you, you're not sure where you stand in the relationship, just go ahead and define it yourself. We are not friends. And then she will redefine it if she needs to, but it's just good to get it out there on the first date. We are not friends. We are more than friends. And, and that's what we did. So that's her favorite story to tell about how she beat me at bowling. My favorite is the James Coney Island, obviously. Uh, but we all have uh, that favorite story we love to tell. And Psalm 105 is a story of God's people. Because what we're talking about today is we're talking about the church and your story. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And then it goes on to recount the story of God's people. So verses 7 through 15 is the story, a summary of the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Verses 16 through 23 talk about how uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob, was sent down to Egypt as a slave, you might remember. But then he's promoted by God to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And through his position and authority, he was actually able to save God's people. Verses 24 through 25 talk about how the, the, the hearts of the Egyptians turned against God's people, Israel, and, and they enslaved them. But through signs and wonders and miraculous power, God used Moses to rescue the Israelites out of slavery. Verses 39 through 42 talk about how God protected his people as he lived with them among the wilderness and he provided for their needs. And then verse 43 and vo- verse 44 uh, talk about how God uh, brought his people out of the wilderness and into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that they could call their own, where they could put down some roots and build some homes. This is the story of God's people, and you also have a story. This was their personal history with God, and you also have a personal history with God. 
Three things I would love for you to write down and remember this morning about your story. Number one, you tell your story so you can remember. You tell your story so you can remember. Verse 5 says, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. To remember means to bring to mind. It means to recollect, which is literally recollect. It's that you're gathering up memories of your story with God in it. Uh, Remember is an important word in the scripture. It's used 166 times in 161 verses. In comparison, the word hope is, is used 151 times. And the word angels is used only 91 times. So remembering is an important part of your life with God. Because the greatest enemy or one of the greatest enemies to your faithfulness is your forgetfulness. One of the greatest enemies to my steadiness with God is my inability to remember what God has done for me before this moment. There's an amazing erosion that happens in our minds when it comes to being able to retell what God has done in our lives. In fact, we see this right in the beginning after God does rescue the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He does it with signs and wonders. So Moses comes and uh, he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And so here comes plague number one, plague number two, plague number three, all the way through ten. Finally, after plague ten, where all the firstborn of Egypt die, Pharaoh, his heart being so hardy, but he, he, he recants. He says, fine, you can go. He releases them. But then he changes his mind and he and his army begin to pursue the Israelites. And so the Israelites are bound on one side by the Red Sea. And bound on the other side by Pharaoh's army. And God opens up the Red Sea and the Israelites walk across on dry land. And then as the Egyptian army is trying to come across, the water comes back down and crashes on them. Now you would think if you saw that happen, if you saw plagues 1 through 10, signs and wonders, strong right hand of power as the scripture says, God using miracles to rescue you. And then you get out into the wilderness and he just parts a whole body of water and you walk across on dry land, but your enemies don't. You would think that from that time on, you would be like, I just trust God. Whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. And I'm going to believe that he's going to take care of me and everything is going to be fine. Exodus chapter 14 tells the story of them walking across the Red Sea on dry ground. The beginning of Exodus chapter 15 is a song of praise about them walking across on dry land. So it's like they got on the other side and they all broke out in song led by Moses. The second half of Exodus 15, them complaining to God because they're not sure where they're going to get water. Ten miracles body of water parting, dry ground, rescued from their enemies. They don't even make it a whole chapter before that is out of their minds and worry, fear, and anxiety is present. We want to remember what God has done before this moment because you are going to come to a crisis moment and in that crisis moment, you're going to ask one question. Can God be trusted. I'm single and I, and, I, and I don't want to be single anymore. I've done that and I've had a good time, but now I want to get married, but there's no options in front of me. I had an option, but it fell through. Can God be trusted? 
we're married, we don't have kids, we really want kids, we want a family, but it's not happening for us. Can God be trusted? I'm in this marriage, I'm with the kids, I'm not sure I'm in love, she's not sure she's in love. Can God be trusted? I'm at work, they're downsizing, I don't have any control of that, I don't have, you know, you know, a bunch of options out there. Can God be trusted? The bank account doesn't have as much as I wish it had. Can God be trusted? I got health problems, my family's got health problems, my parents have health problems. Can God be trusted? You're going to come to this crisis moment. And you're going to ask yourself, can God be trusted? And if you don't remember what God has done, you won't be sure how to answer that question. When they're in the wilderness with God, he has them build this tent or tabernacle. It was beautiful. It was decked out in gold. In the middle of this tent was a place they called the Holy of Holies, and in that was the Ark of the Covenant. You've maybe seen Indiana Jones, so we're all on the same page here. This Ark of the Covenant was this beautiful chest, and on it was something that they called the mercy seat, and they had these two big angels in gold, and that was believed to be the earthly throne of God. Of course, God is everywhere. His presence is everywhere and can be anywhere, but he would manifest his presence, meaning he would make his presence visible right there on that ark like like it was his throne, and you could see it when you looked at the tent. And in that ark, there were three things. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us what those three things are. If you wanted to turn there, or you can just read them up on the screen with me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, it says, Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was, so here comes the three things that are in the ark of the covenant, a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tab- tablets of the covenant. So three things in that ark of the covenant. A, a jar of manna. Now, manna... Uh, was this miraculous provision that God made for them. Because you have Exodus 14, crossing the Red Sea. First half of Exodus 15, big song of praise. Second half of Exodus 15, complaining because they don't have any water. You think, oh, God miraculously provided water for them. They threw this log into this, this bitter uh, pond, this bitter lake, and, and now it's drinkable. You think, well, man, they're going to be happy now forever. No, Exodus 16, now they're complaining about food. In fact, they're so angry and upset and broken about the food that they tell Moses to tell God, we wish you would have left us in Egypt to die as slaves because at least there we had a bunch of meat to eat. So God says, well, here's what I'm going to do. When you wake up in the morning, there's going to be dew on the ground just as there always is. But when the dew dries, there's going to be this bread substance and you're going to be able to be sustained through it. You can turn it into cakes. You can turn it into loaves of bread. And this is going to be your provision. And you're going to come out every single morning and get this manna. The word manna is not actually a real word. It's, it's our version of whatchamacallit. They just didn't know what to call it. And so manna is what they called it. It was called the the bread of angels somewhere else in the scripture. And so God, so that they will remember, he says, I want you to put some of it in a jar and I want you to put the jar in the ark. The other thing that's in the ark is Aaron's staff. You know, when God comes to Moses and he says to Moses through the burning bush, I want you to go and rescue my people out of Israel, you think the natural response is a voice is speaking to me out of a, a bush that's on fire. I'm just going to do whatever the voice says. But no, he's like, well, I don't, I'm kind of scared of public speaking. This is literally what he says. And, uh, and so God says, fine, then I'm going to use your brother Aaron to be your mouthpiece. I'm going to speak to you. 
And I'm going to tell you, and then you're going to tell Aaron, and Aaron is going to be your mouthpiece to the people of Israel. So Moses and Aaron were one and two in leadership of God's people. Well, I know that no one in here has ever gotten grumpy against anyone who's been a leader in their lives. I know that you've never complained about your boss, not one time in the history of you being a person. Uh, But it turns out when people are bored and things don't go well, then whatever authority is in your life, it's, it's easy to rebel against that. And so the book of Numbers tells us the story, I think in chapter 16 and 17, Uh, there was this guy named Korah, and Korah had had enough of Moses and Aaron's leadership, and so he starts uh, to spread the word. And that kind of word spreads real quickly. Hey, we're unhappy with this guy. Hey, you know what? I don't got anything else going on. I'm going to be unhappy with that guy too, and then let's just all be unhappy at this guy together. It'll be fantastic. And so Korah starts spreading this thing, and Moses finds out about it, and he essentially tells the people, here's the deal. You can go with Korah. If you want to, by all means, go with Korah. It's going to be bad for Korah and all the people with him. So if you're not with Korah, then I would run away. I would run real far away. And about that time, the ground opens up, the earth, the globe opens up and swallows up Korah and his family and all the families and all the people who had a problem with Moses and Aaron's leadership. Now you would think that everyone who didn't perish would be like, Moses, I'm with you, man. Where are you going? Because that's where I'm going. You want to go to James Coney Island? Let's go to James Coney Island. I'll worry about the calories later. You want to go to McDonald's? I don't believe in McDonald's that there's any real food there, but I'm with you. I don't want to perish in the middle of the earth. It looks hot down there. I'm riding with you, but they don't do that. Some of the people complain back to Moses to complain to God. Well, why did those people have to die? Now we're upset that those people died. So at this point, Moses is like, I don't know what, what we have to do to get this issue straight. So here's what I want. I want every leader, every would-be leader to hand me their staff. And before you hand me their staff, I want you to write your name on it. It would be like the equivalent of us handing him our phones, like that thing that we just always have with us. And so he took all those staffs with all those names in it, and he took Aaron, one for, from Aaron, it had Aaron's name on it, and, and they just put him in the midst of that tabernacle, that tent where God's presence was. And they just left him there overnight. They come back in the morning. Moses starts pulling out the staffs. And your staff is normal, and my staff's normal, and this person's staff is normal. But Aaron's had, uh, well, his had turned alive, and flowers had blossomed out of it, and almonds had come to fruition in the middle of the night and Moses was able to hold it up and say, can we be done with this issue? And God had them put that staff in the Ark of the Covenant. The last thing is probably the thing you're most familiar with, the tablets that God's covenant was written on. And the scriptures say that God wrote on those tablets in his own finger. But you remember there were two sets of tablets because when Moses first went up on the mountain and God is giving him the covenant, he comes back down, but he finds the Israelites along with his brother Aaron, all dancing and worship around and dancing uh, around and worshiping this golden calf. And Moses is so angry and he breaks that first set of tablets and he's like, what are you guys doing? And they, they said, well, you speak for God and you went up on the mountain with God and you've been up there a really long time and we didn't want to be left leaderless. And so we put all of our jewelry and all of our gold into the fire and just out popped this calf and we just thought that we should worship it. And so he has to go back up on the mountain and God again with his finger has to write 
on these tablets, and the tablets went into the Ark of the Covenant. So you got these three things, and all of them were born out of a crisis of faith. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted to provide for my daily needs? Can God be trusted with the leadership that he's put in my life? Can God be trusted with his presence and whether or not I have someone to mediate for me? And what if that person has gone too long? Can God be trusted? And, and you've had these moments already in your life. Maybe you've had them this week. Maybe you're considering it right now. Can God be trusted? And if you are not consistently telling your story, you are not hearing your story. And if you are not hearing your story, then you are not remembering your story. God has done more miracles in our lives than we would write down today because we have forgotten them. God has answered hundreds and thousands of your requests. And yet some of us in here today are are bitter at him because he's not given us what we want in this just moment because we've not been telling our story. We've not been remembering God's faithfulness to us. We tell our story so that we can remember. Next thing I want you to write down, we tell our story so others will know. It says in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. We tell our story so others will know. I love John chapter 4. Why don't you turn there with me? It's one of the most powerful stories of how someone's story can affect other people's lives. Jesus has come into a village of Samaria and he sat down at a well. It says in verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. And come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So essentially, what Jesus does is he strikes a nerve in her, and she wants to to change the subject to religious details. 
this has happened to you before. You've been having a conversation with somebody and you got into an area of conversation that was real personal to them and then they wanted to talk about, well, can the, the Bible be trusted and what about this? And I read this on the internet or they want to talk about how the church has hurt them and there's a bunch of hypocrites there and their mom went to church and the, her bad mom and the, all those things because there was a nerve that was hit there. But Jesus doesn't let it go. He says in verse 25, And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to the town and were coming to him. Now skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And he he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So God uses this woman's story as a bridge so that they can experience Jesus for themselves. To tell her story... She needed to get to people who needed to hear it. Can you imagine if Jesus just unlocked her past right there and she was amazed and she believed, but she just stayed at the well and here come the disciples and she says to them, you guys aren't going to believe this. This guy knows everything that I ever did. What would the disciples say? They would be like, yeah, like no duh. That same thing happened to all of us. And Nathaniel would come forward and be like, hey, he saw me when I was under a fig tree. And the first time I met him, he knew exactly where I had been and exactly what I had said. And my mind was blown and I followed him. She wouldn't have told them anything that they didn't already know. But God has given you a story. And that story needs to be heard by people who need to hear that story. If the only people who know your story are people who have the exact same story, we need to be a little bit braver. If the only people who know your story are people who can say, amen, that happened to me too, then we need to step out there a little bit further. This past week, Amanda and the kids and I were in Florida because I was preaching at this spring break conference ministry type of thing uh, in Panama City Beach. If you're wondering if spring break culture is still alive and well, it is uh, in PCB. That's what they call it. And, uh, and so we saw all kinds of things, which was amazing. And, and so just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of college students coming down to Panama City Beach to unwind from the semester and express a little bit of their collegiate freedom. At the same time, about 500 uh, Christian college students were headed to Panama City Beach, but for a much different purpose. Because they came in vans with phone numbers written uh, on the windows. And for five days, uh, their ministry would start at 9 p.m. And they would get in these vans 
And they would walk along the streets, handing out these little cards, uh, giving people the opportunity to have free rides so that they didn't drink and drive. Uh, to minister to somebody in Jesus' name, they would take people from the hotels to the clubs and from the clubs to the clubs and from the clubs back to the hotels from 9 p.m. to about 3 a.m. And in about five days, they gave over 4,000 college students rides where otherwise they might have been drinking and driving. And why these other college students are in these vans, they're having conversations. Some of those conversations were shallow and about the weather and about what have you guys done today and many of them ended up into deeper waters. Can I tell you my story? So I was talking with one of these guys right before I got up to preach and I'm like, tell me about your night, 9 p.m., 3 a.m., what was your job? And he's like, my job, I was the navigator in one of the vans. So I was getting the text message where we were supposed to go and I was calling the people saying, we're gonna be there in 10 minutes. And then my job was to get us there and then get us to where they needed to go. And he said that uh, one uh, part of the night, about five or six guys got on the, the, the van and, and he said, that's the hardest when it's a group of guys because they just wanna keep it shallow. They don't wanna have any real deep conversations and they just wanna get on to where they're going. And he said, there was, you know, brief, small talk, and then there was a lull in the conversation. And this guy, I mean, he was probably 21 years old, and he's kind of a big, strong-looking dude. And he's like, hey, you guys mind if I uh, share my story? And they're, of course, a little loosened up. And so they're like, yeah, come on, tell your story. And he just takes it, boom, right in. And he said, uh, my stepfather uh, abused me and beat me for most of my young adult life, most of my childhood and into my young adult life. And because of that, it had some serious ramifications and then some choices that I made on top of that didn't help. Long story short, then Jesus came in and everything's different for me. And out of the back of the van comes this guy saying, that happened to me too. My stepfather beat me, told me I was worthless. And this spring breaker who had come to Panama City Beach for a good time is now just exposing his heart and the things that truly are in there and the things that truly matter in the middle of this van. And, and he's telling a story that none of his buddies had ever heard. But because this guy in a lull in the conversation told his story. There are people in your life They don't need your Facebook post. They don't need your daily Bible verse. They need to know your story. And notice for this woman, she had to swallow a lot of pride to go back into her village. Bible scholars tell us that she's there at noon because none of the other ladies wanted to be with her because she had had husband after husband after husband, which is a taboo in our culture. Multiply that times a thousand and you might have the kind of black mark that would have been on her life. So to go back in and to even speak to these people, to look them in the eye, would have taken some severe uh, pride uh, swallowing. And essentially she would be owning up to it. You guys know me, you know my story. This is not a large village, but I gotta tell you something and you gotta believe me, there's this guy over here. Now, as you tell your story to people who need to hear your story, it needs to be an honest version of your story. Some of us have been presenting the G-rated version of our story to save face because the grit, the past, 
makes us a little uncomfortable. But what do we know from the scripture? God anoints nonfiction. So do not present a fictionalized version of what God has done in your life. I'm not saying that you need to break out the R version. I'm not sure that we need an R version of anything. But maybe the PG version. Maybe in some context, the PG-13 version so that somebody in this city can have something to relate to. Who can relate to, I've been perfect all the days of my life and oh, by the way, I believe in Jesus. Who can relate to, I've gotten everything that I've ever wanted and I've never been disappointed one time and everything has worked out great for me. Would you like to come to church with me? Some of us got to worry less about saving face and worry more about saving souls. Tell your story so you can remember. Tell your story so others will hear. And tell your story so God will get the glory. Psalm 105, verse 2. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name. You may be thinking, well, I don't have a great story. That's what I thought most of my life because the very first story of of somebody's testimony of how Jesus intersected their lives that I heard that I can remember was so dramatic. This guy came through our town and our almost whole church showed up at this arena with a bunch of other churches to listen to this guy tell his story. And his story was crazy. He, he was a Satan worshiper. And, you know, he would look in the mirror and there would be like demons there. And there were goat's heads and there were all these symbols. And he's just unpacking his story. And then Jesus came and saved him. And it was just mind-blowing. And then I'm thinking about my story, which is like, I grew up in church. My mom and dad were awesome. What a burden. You know, um... I got rebellious when I was 16 and cursed for about three weeks. And then somebody offered me a beer and I didn't take it, but I really thought about it. You may be like, I don't have, I don't have a story that anybody wants to hear. I love Psalm 105 because Psalm 105 is not about the details. It's, it's not about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's not about Joseph going to Egypt. And it's not about the famine. And it's not about God's provision it's, it's, uh, of food. And it's not about the Israelites coming out of the plagues and the Red Sea into a land flowing. With this is a story that no matter what the details are, God brings you through. And everybody has that story. A couple of questions for you to answer. Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever experienced loss? Have you ever grieved? Have you ever had a relationship that ended before you wanted it to? Have you ever been in a financial moment that worried you? Have you ever had a problem with your kids that didn't resolve itself in the first 30 seconds? Have there ever been tension in your marriage? Have you ever gotten a phone call from the doctor that said, I need you to come back in? Has your your parent ever called you to say, I got a phone call from the doctor and I need to go back in? Have you ever buried somebody? 
Because if the answer to any of those questions is yes, then you have a story that people need to hear. And it may not have the ups and downs, and it may not have the wow factor of everybody else's story, but the story is not about the details. The story is not about the ups and downs. The story is about a God who has brought you through. And the one thing all of us can say today is he's at least got us to this point right here. You may not be here with a lot of the stuff that you wish you had. You may not be here with all the people that you wish were here with you. But by God's grace, you are here. And when you tell your story of how God got you through, then he gets glory. I was in India a few years ago. And we were traveling around preaching in uh, these little villages and it was a little team of preachers. And you never knew like when it was gonna be your turn. They just kind of, people in charge, the host church just said, we thinking you're the guy for today. And, and so I woke up one morning and they pointed at me, you're the guy for today. And we're gonna go to this village. We're gonna go a little bit earlier because uh, uh, this village doesn't have a church. So we don't have a place to gather. It means we don't have electricity. We don't have really a thing. So we're going to just go out into the middle of the square of the village and uh, you're just going to get there and preach. And when you start preaching this American, people are going to show up to, to listen and, and that's it. That's all that's happening. Oh, and by the way, uh, there's definitely no church here and we're not sure as best we can remember that there's been somebody who's come through here and told people about Jesus in a real, real, real long time. So most of these people you've been talking to, they maybe heard the name of Jesus, but they don't know anything about it. So no pressure. All right, that's, that's great. All right. Like what sermon am, am I going to preach? You know, I'm going to break out. Hey, I know none of you have heard about Jesus, but let me just give you four principles on taming your tongue right now. Or, uh, you know, here's uh, three points to help you uh, maximize joy in your life. None of those things are going to work. So the whole time we're driving about an hour and a half to get to this village, I'm thinking, well, what am I going to say? I don't have anything to say. And we get there, we get to the square. It turns out the village is more like a whole town and a lot of activity. And there's this capped well in the middle of the square. And they're like, just go stand on that and just start talking. Oh, okay. All right. Come on, Jesus. What are we saying? What are we saying? I need something. Pull it out of my pocket. Pull it out of my pocket. And, and by God's grace, just remembering that when the apostle Paul was in those situations, he, he'd tell his story about when he was on the road to Damascus and bright light of Jesus's glory blinded him and Jesus said you've been persecuting the church but now you work for me I thought well I don't have that story but I got a story there are people in this city who need to hear your sermon they don't need to hear my sermon they need to hear your sermon and your story is your best sermon because your story backs up all the truth. Your story is living and breathing. Your story is relatable. Your story is your best sermon. And people in this city need to hear your sermon. And when you preach your sermon, tell your story, you will remember that God has been good to you. You have not gotten everything that you've wanted. You have been disappointed and you have tasted the bitter despair of loss, but he is good. And when you tell your story, other people will be affected. And when you tell your story, God will get the glory. 
So Jesus, send us out of here today to go and tell our stories, to preach our best sermons. Not with points and write this down, but with living, breathing, still experiencing human flesh. Because our story is a story of how you've gotten us through the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the ins and the outs. And so God, this morning, I pray that you would just start taking some of those memories that have been put on the shelf in our minds that we've not thought about in a long time. I pray that they would start coming, flooding back to our minds of all the answered requests, the yeses that we did get from you, the joys that we have experienced, your faithfulness in hard times. I pray that we would be able to remember all of it today so that we can go and we can tell, we can preach, we can proclaim the wondrous works of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet?